Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 58. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petro, I am the CEO of Petro Nerds and the host of the Petro Nerds Podcast. And this episode was recorded actually on August 11th. So today it's September 1st and I'm going to recap you a bit on the market because we've had a wild ride since August 11th to September 1st and what's going on in the oil market. And I have given a, a slug of presentations here in Denver um, and virtually as well. Uh, but this presentation that you're about to listen to or this talk that I, I, I gave was done on August 11th, 2022. Um, my nieces were with me. It was awesome. I gave it at the with the Denver Petroleum Club. It was uh, the lunch program for their mentors. So it was Denver Petroleum Club mentor program. And at the time of recording, or on August 11th, oil prices were $93.51 for WTI. We had net gas around $8.35, and we were seeing Dutch TTF at $62.54. Now, a lot has changed since then, because as of August, um, we've seen since then, just recently, we saw $100 Dutch TTF prices. We have seen oil prices push toward $100 and come back down. Now we're seeing prices at $87 and change. We're seeing Brent at $93.50. Um, yeah, $93.30. And so oil prices, have, we, we saw Brent just the other day at well over 100 bucks. So we're seeing a lot of movement in oil prices. We've heard um, the OPEC, we, we heard the Saudi oil minister actually talk about, after I gave this speech a couple of weeks, we've heard the Saudi oil minister talk about actually doing cuts or saying that they would be willing to cut production because they didn't think the market was being reflective of actual oil prices and fundamentals. And we also have Iran, the Iran sanction or, or the Iran deal or potential lifting of sanctions on Iran impacting and weighing on oil prices, fears that if these sanctions were lifted, the oil prices would come back down. And we cannot leave out the Fed. So I'll get into describing what the this presentation is or, or talk that I gave is in just a second. But, you know, since this presentation, August 11th, we had the Fed speak um, in Jackson Hole last week. So last Friday, the Fed spoke and it was a pretty big deal because the, the Fed's hawkish tone and these worries about uh, a deal with Iran are and and recession concerns and and real worries about demand are weighing on oil prices. In addition to you know there is a is a, some credence to be given to what the Saudi oil minister said of that we do have some erratic trading. So we have a lot of algorithmic trading. We have less physical human traders um, in the market, and that can we we can see pretty exact exacerbated move. So we're moving ten fifteen dollars in a two week period on oil. That should tell us something. But the hawkish Fed is also what's uh, is also weighing on on oil prices because the dollar is surging and we are seeing a lot when dollar surges you should have an inverse relationship with oil. So what's happening is that you know Fed came out, Jerome Powell came out and get, had some very hawkish comments um, with regards to an, um, with regards to inflation and fighting inflation. We saw another uh, another person from the Federal Open Market Committee. Um, talked yesterday about how they're very uh, they're very bullish on on Fed rate hikes, right? They they expect the, the Fed to hike over over four percent, and they do not expect the Fed to lower rates um, in the course of 2023, which is completely different from what the market, the stock market, was baking in this Fed pivot that the Fed would see a recession, that inflation would come down, and the Fed would have to lower interest rates. And that's clearly not what the Fed is signaling, not what was signaled at all in um, in the eight minute speech that Jerome Powell gave in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which was that he was concerned about inflation and that the Fed needed to learn from history and understand history from the 1970s and fight inflation and not let it continue to go up and then bring bring uh, interest rates back down and then continue to fight inflation. So that has a lot to do with the Fed's credibility. Uh, a year ago in Jackson Hole, uh, Jerome Powell was talking about inflation being transitory. Clearly, it has not been transitory, and now this is what they're fighting. And this really does have impacts on, on the overall economy, on recession worries, on risk, and on obviously on oil prices and potentially on oil demand. So in this talk that I give um, with a in this talk that I give to some industry leaders in the room as well as the mentors or mentees um, that they had with the Denver Petroleum Club, we cover everything in this talk, which I really encourage you to listen. There is a hundred slides that go with it, but the talk works great for a podcast. Um, and my nieces were kind enough to sort of help me out with recording, so the audio is actually pretty good. Um, and I talk a little bit slower in this presentation, so I think you folks will enjoy it. Um, but I cover everything from the globally of the global oil market in the beginning, the macro. 
economy, U.S. inflation, oil prices, oil demand. We talk about Chinese coal production, Chinese unemployment and housing. We definitely get into ESG and sort of framing that and also talk about U.S. energy production, the drop in U.S. energy production during COVID, during 2020, what happened with coal, oil and natural gas across states, and really get into U.S. oil and gas, the U.S. oil and gas production and the split between the publics and privates and what's really driving the move there for public and private investment. Now, I'll talk about this in future podcasts and definitely have this teed up to talk about the Fed and what's going on with the current energy crisis in Europe and seeing $100 is since come down, but Dutch GTF prices did hit $100 um, in dollars per MMBTU. So huge, huge surge in prices. We are seeing um, absolute you know, serious fears and concerns for inflation that's, that's in, it's a dooming, it's, it's pending, it's looming um, in Europe because we are seeing 9.1% inflation in Europe, which is at record highs. And we're expected to see teens uh, double digit inflation in the UK very soon. Uh, several banks are calling for a recession with, by the fourth quarter for the UK of this year. And I think that's really important to point out in the context that we have California. So we have California right now. Um, has California came out and said they're banning internal combustion engine cars, so ICE engines, by um, by the by 2035. And we also had just recently, just like with the last couple of days, the um, the governor Gavin Newsom come out and say that they are concerned about blackouts in rolling blackouts potentially in California, given issues with energy. And because of that, they are going to lift waivers and bans and. And, um, you know, they're going to lift the, the amount available that uh, the power plants can burn natural gas. So if, if we've learned nothing from this crisis in Europe, I think really it is energy security, how critical and how important it is. Um, and the fact that we are having grid instability and reliability in places like Texas and California um, and also and absolutely on the East Coast where you need more natural gas and you have to have these reliable backups um, included. And California has had to import a lot of that natural gas and a lot of that into their grid. So we are going to see continued issues with that. And lastly, just to recap, uh, there's a lot going on in China. So we are seeing the city of Chengdu, uh, a city of 21 million people, not nearly as, um, you know, we, Shanghai shut down with 25 million people for two months for COVID. Chengdu has um, is in lockdown right now. That is 21 million people. It is not nearly as economically important to, to the country of China as Shanghai. However, it is a major manufacturing hub. So iPhones are produced there or components of iPhones. We are seeing a lot, a lot of autos are manufactured there. A lot of auto parts are manufactured there. We're talking Volkswagen, Toyota, things like that. And if you saw auto data today, we actually saw that there was a, a, a real, I mean, the average car or auto price is about $46,000. Um, and the average new vehicle um, lease or payment is over $700 for the American consumer. So huge amount for a new vehicle, um, which is another inflationary issue we can talk about. But the point is that there's not enough autos out there um, and there's not enough cars to actually be sold and then it's impacting auto manufacturers. So a shutdown in China like this is a big deal. We are seeing um, the, we're seeing a lot of data coming out of China in terms of poor manufacturing data because of COVID lockdowns. And we're seeing major issues with regards to across the world, as we're seeing with regards to lack of hydropower uh, because of not enough rain and because of a very hot summer. And because China's grid is 17% um, hydropower, 17, 20% hydropower, significantly higher in certain areas, um, that is really, really cumbersome. And so you're seeing massive brownouts and blackouts and problems with energy security within China. And I, I have to point that out because within the context of this presentation, I say that China has power security and they have enough on a nameplate capacity in terms of how much coal they produce and how much coal they consume for power. They do have enough. But that being said, because they do have renewables and because they do have hydropower in their grid, when you have a very hot summer, you draw down on uh, you, you draw down on everything else and it can create dislocations across their economy and uh, across their electricity grid. So with that, I'll leave you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoy this talk and presentation and uh, talk to you soon folks. Bye. Okay, so I'm titling this false sense of security. Um, and the reason that is, is because um, I think that there's a lot of things in the market. If you watch the stock market or if you're just looking at oil prices today, I do think there's a false sense of security in the market. Um, and part of that's because oil prices are up. Um, I, I think the economy looks pretty bad. Um, yesterday, we saw, we saw the inflation rate come down to 8.5%, um, but that doesn't really reflect reality given that the only thing that drove down inflation was actually oil prices and everything else is up. Um, and there's massive, extreme, unprecedented geopolitical and economic complexities um, taking place in the market. If you don't know Petronas or what Petronas is, um, this is a Petronas, that would be me. Um, 
on top of some tank batteries. My dad was pumping wells several years ago, and, and I was out there. So I love the business. I'm third generation oil and gas. Um, my dad pumped oil wells. My grandfather pumped oil wells in Wyoming. And I was very fortunate enough to go to college and um, work in the business on analyzing the crap out of it um, and explaining it back to people and helping people um, understand it. If you haven't listened to the podcast, I absolutely encourage you to do so. Um, the last several are really good. Heidi Gill was a guest on my podcast. I have several guests talk about the market. My nieces even listen to it. Um, we talk about inflation a lot. So major takeaways, and I was given some loose terms on this. I was told to talk for like 40 minutes, so we can we can plow through things fast. You can you know if there's certain things we don't want to cover or skip over, that's totally fine. Um, but major takeaways, unprecedented complexities, which I'm sure that will be a takeaway in this as, as we go through this. Uh, recession and potential crises, and really not potential, actual, more like actual crises. World War II analogies, um, there are many of them. And I'm not trying to be alarming. They're just they're really serious. Um, and that's part of the crises thing. We, we probably ha have more World War II analogies and more you know, upcoming to war analogies than we ever had. Understanding risk and sort of appreciating it. And China, because we cannot not talk about China, because it's me. Um, the current crisis. So uh, these unprecedented complexities, you know, rampant inflation. This inflation was happening. You know, we have war and more inflation. So we already had inflation well before the war in Ukraine. Um, that war in Ukraine was teed up for a long time, basically since, obviously, since 2014, really, since um, Russia invaded Crimea. But actually, it was really teed up, I think, more so from mid last year, mid 2021 um, to now. And so that's been taking place for a while. But even before that, we also had inflation, particularly in the US. We actually led the world in inflation uh, with a lot of stimulus and a lot of spending. So we now have food and energy crises because of the war and because of lots of things going on. We have severe anti-oil and gas, a very severe anti-oil and gas movement, um, ESG investor pressure, and aggressive green policies. And those connected together have really helped exacerbate a lot of the problems we see here. So food and energy crisis is absolutely, you know, it, it's very, very serious for the bottom sort of 50% of the world and, and really impacting folks that we're seeing in Africa and the Middle East, even Middle Eastern countries that produce a lot of energy are really being severely impacted with energy crises and with food crises. And the 27 trillion global economic stimulus, so about 27 trillion was spent between fiscal and monetary stimulus during COVID. A ridiculous, unprecedented, insane amount of money that was pushed into the global economy that screwed it all up. And a good amount of this was fiscal stimulus from our Fed and others, and then very long lags in, in responding to inflation. And now we have big problems. So we have these severe fiscal lags leading to employment latency, um, not paying student loans, uh, you know, massive, uh, increasing food stamps by a third, um, not having to pay rent for two years. There's a lot of la fiscal lags in the system that are helping it's helping, in, I wouldn't say incentivize, but it is a component of people not going back to work. When you have two job openings for every one applicant, that's a big problem and that's part of it. Um, part of the recent, not, I mean, last few weeks, but the, the price spike that we saw previous to that is really about reduced refining capacity and reduced oil and natural gas. I mean, the oil and natural gas production we've had for a while, the reduction, but this reduced refining capacity is pretty serious that happened during COVID again, another lag. And that's part of the, also the severe anti-oil and gas movement. Uh, the war in Ukraine provoked by the second largest oil and gas you know, producer in the world, um, supported by obviously the number one importer, China, China, China. Um, and what are business leaders thinking and are they prepared? Um, you know, I know that they're thinking about this, but whether or not they're completely prepared, um, there's so many things happening right now. And this is not just oil and gas leaders that have to understand this is, this is every business. This is CEOs of, of Tesla, this is Ford, this is Caterpillar. I don't know if you saw Lowe's and Home Depot today. I mean, lots of, lots of things that are super interconnected that really matter for business and absolutely matter for, for oil demand and oil and your guys' business. So the backdrop, health of the global economy, OPEC, Russian production. We're gonna go through this fast. This will give you a nice snapshot on what the global economy looks like. So that's oil and gas prices and the economy. Um, and I, I really think it's important, I mean, it, the, this is 2007, 2008 that I've put here, right? So we have this price spike. There was a lot of things happening. Obviously, we had a subprime mortgage meltdown that took down the economy, but we also had inflation and we also had oil prices. And we're nearing those sort of levels over here. And those gas prices, I would say, are way more important than oil prices in many ways, because we can sort of eat oil prices to a large degree, but gas prices are embedded in the economy in a way that really impacts your, the ability for you to heat your home, the ability for you to cool your home, um, and the ability for your to turn on your lights and your electricity. And that's a big deal and something we're really, really seeing in the inflation data right now. Now, obviously our prices are not nearly as high 
um, as Europe, which is a very big problem and a serious energy crisis because it's not even going to be about, about prices, although that's very serious and we'll talk about that. It's whether they're going to even have enough gas to use it. So the reason prices are up is because they don't have enough gas. And the curtailing on gas consumption, and I know Chris Wright and Liberty talk a ton about this, about ESG and, and, and poverty, but it's a really big deal because in Europe right now, I mean, Spain has instituted curbs on right now. It's very, very hot in Europe. And they have a cap on the air conditioning to 80 degrees. So that is the highest you can lower your cooling at 80 is 80 degrees. Can't really cool off anywhere. And then this winter, the highest you can heat your home is going to be 66 degrees. And that's going to be a problem, I think, for a lot of people and a lot of businesses. Um, so we've had a bit of erratic prices, obviously, in that gas. That was the Freeport LNG facility that went out here that curbed that. Obviously, our prices are up because we do reflect the global market a bit. And we're exporting about 12 BCF a day. And then European gas prices, though, are back to all-time highs of $62 in MCF, which is just Absolutely insane. And it's going to, I mean, I 100% believe, I mean, Europe is already in recession, but they're going to pull the global economy into recession and wait till this winter because things are about to get much, much more messy over there. Um, so oil price volatility, um, I, I do think it's really important to think about thinking about oil price volatility because when you listen to earnings calls and you hear you know, CEOs and everyone talk about the macro and what the forward curve and the strip is and everybody feels great, you know, that's the strip from June 27th, you know, it's nice and clean and pretty and oil prices don't usually look that clean and pretty. They kind of look like that. Um, you know, it's a little bit, it's, it's messy. And um, this is sort of that false sense of security. We're at 93 bucks a day. We were $87 last week. I saw 86 at one point. So you can see it's pretty erratic. This decline that you've seen in oil prices in the last week or two is about demand. And that's really serious because that's something that I do think some oil executives, there's a bit of a disconnect in where people really think we have a very healthy macro. We do not have a healthy macro. The macro looks awful. The global economy looks horrible. Um, and every time everybody's declining gross domestic product you know, economic forecasts, and that means GDP is highly correlated to oil demand. So you know, oil demand will lag, just like employment will lag. Um, but it's really serious to think about that because um, it's, not, it's not as rosy as it looks. It's more about a supply type picture. And even then, I'm not quite as concerned about supply as most people, although we did draw down a lot on our crude inventories in the US, which is problematic. And it's kind of nice to think also about just the past on where we were for these oil price chunks. So that red line is oil production. We're climbing our way back to pre-COVID levels. It's taking a bit of time, but we're going to get there. Uh, but prices, if you just bucket this up to 2000, 2007, our prices are at 44 bucks for on average for that, that time. Then we moved to 88 bucks in 2008, 2013, and averaged 58 bucks between 2014 and 2021 altogether. That should tell you a lot about people thinking this new price environment of 100 forever. I just call BS on it. It's just not, you, if you're comfortable with 100 forever, this is just not the oil market that we live in because yes, there's unprecedented volatility that could certainly drive prices higher, absolutely. But there's also supply and supply comes online when prices are this high. So you can't see this, I apologize, it's a little small, didn't know what my screen would look like. But the, um, the, we saw inflation data come out yesterday. We've seen the Biden administration and many others really brag that inflation has come down. Look, it went from 9.1% last month to 8.5% this month. The problem is the only negatives that you see. So when we talk about inflation, it is a serious deal. I mean, it is a tax on the consumer. It is a major, major deal that a lot of people don't appreciate. That's all energy you know, that we're seeing. That's the only negative we had. We had oil prices drop in the past month, and that's what drove down prices. And, then, and the reason oil prices dropped was because they, the price was so high, and between inflation and high oil prices, we, we curtailed our demand a bit. And then all items, less food and energy, those all went up. So food is just out of control. Um, and I have two nieces this week, and grocery shopping has made me scared. Um, going to out to eat is scary. Like everything is like, holy crap, bacon is $16 for 12 pieces. Um, and it's a little bit, we're in Bananaville territory. Cereal is all-time highs. I mean, actually, if you look at food, we are at levels that, literally, un levels we've never seen before in prices. Um, so very, very big deal there. Um, so inflation has not only came down in energy. Um, it, it coming down at all is good, but actually food, shelter, everything, or shelter and, and food have really gone up. And then add that, the payroll and jobs report. Um, so the podcast that will come out this week with, with Gabby, that I did with Gabby, we talk about this, and it's great, is that the jobs report that came out last week, if you've watched the stock market and you've seen the 10-year yield, or you've just seen, 
you know, people very bullish on the stocks. Stocks are going back up, and it's great. And, and the 10-year yield is coming down, and mortgage rates are coming down. And that 10-year yield tracks its mortgage rates really well. Um, but our jobs report was, was great. Um, that's not good for the stock market, because that means the Fed is going to see this as a, this is bullish, right? We're adding jobs, and, um, but we have high inflation. And so that means you've got to raise rates. You have to raise rates, and they've just been very slow off the mark to do it. So we added a bunch of jobs, more than double than expected. Um, we have a decline for the second month in a row of labor participation, and we have a 5.2% increase in average hourly earnings. That is a major problem because wage price spirals, when prices go up and wages go up, it gets entrenched in people's minds that, of inflation and that consumer expectations for inflation. Very, very big deal because when that gets entrenched, you can't rewind it, and then the Fed and your labor market, which people think is so great now, doesn't last, and we eventually it just deteriorates because no one can afford it. Um, and that's why the Fed has to raise rates, is because the labor market will be way worse in the future um, if they don't do it now. Now we also have a, a global economic. This is this is from the World Bank. It was a great report, but I mean they call it a global commodity shock without parallel, and it really is because it's all these factors of inflation and, and energy and food all coming together at once. Something we've never actually seen before. You can go back to the six the seventies. Yes, we had high oil prices, but the inflation came down pretty rapidly, as did oil prices. Now we have high energy prices and we have high um, everything prices. And so energy price growth, several hundred percent, we're up nearly 400%. Fertilizer price growth is 200%. Food price growth is um, up probably, set, that's probably 100% now. Um, and the problem is, is obviously, is food, fertilizer, you know, we need natural gas to make fertilizer. Um, natural gas is, it, it's extremely important. So that really rapid cost, you know, we're seeing for natural gas in Europe is, and, and elsewhere is really impacting fertilizer prices. Countries, African countries and Middle Eastern countries and European countries aren't able to pay for that fertilizer and therefore their crop yields are down. Obviously Russia and Ukraine export a lot of grain. So it's just a very compounded interrelated problem that is um, very, very serious. And I think it's gonna make the Arab Spring in you know, sort of the 2010 time look like kittens and daisies and unicorns um, because this is much, much more serious. And people are, when you put these economic problems on people, um, they do riot, they do revolt, they do protests. We are seeing, and the World War II analogies are, I mean, Sri Lanka has had massive protests, uh, Pakistan, um, Italy is without a leader, so you know, that Mario Draghi has, has bowed out. Um, Boris Johnson has bowed out in the UK. And Neville Chamberlain did the same thing. You have multiple leaders in Europe that don't exist right now, that countries without leadership right now, and you have a war in Europe. Um, not a great time to not have good leadership when you have this going on, and then all these economic complexities. And then the China thing we haven't even talked about, which is serious and also completely funding the war in Ukraine. Um, so this is a complex and compounded food and energy crisis. The IMF and the UN has some great stuff on this. So between fertilizers, food, crude, net gas, um, maritime trade, the cost of, of just actually moving stuff, that's gone way, way up. And so all these compound together and rising interest rates to really create um, problems for, for the global economic system to move around. And that rising interest rates, you know, is not just, it's a big deal, can be a big deal for the oil and gas industry. I mean, uh, the ability to borrow, um, you got to refinance your debt, things like that. But that goes for everyone. So particularly in tech, that's why tech stocks really get hammered when interest rates go up. So tech, Tesla, Peloton, you, you name these companies that sort of need, you know, need this money. And then green tech, really, really big for wind, solar. This all has to be subsidized. And part of why they did so well, especially during COVID, this green technology is because of very low interest rates. And when interest rates go up, they don't look very attractive. They weren't economic to begin with. They're not economic now. They probably won't be economic. I, some would wager never, but you know, who knows? Um, I'm not gonna poo-poo them all day long. If they're made here and we drop the cost, I'll be all for it. Um, Russia and Ukraine export more than just oil and gas. So you can see, I mean, this is, the, I'm sorry, the colors you probably can't see very well on the screen, but that's, that's Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine in red. Obviously the percent exports they, they send to these countries, a lot of these countries you can see are in the Middle East or in Africa. So these are the vulnerable countries that are heavily exposed. So when they're not getting food and fuel, that's a problem. And then you can see that you know, metals and minerals, they export a lot of metals and minerals, and that impacts the entire global supply chain for everything. Same for not just energy, but pig iron. Uh, that's huge, as you know, in this business. I mean, steel, iron, all this stuff is really having an impact on the, on the global economy. So debt vulnerabilities, a lot of people have talked about, you know, we don't, this is not the same as 2008. You know, we don't have a mortgage crisis. We don't have sovereign debt issues. We actually do have sovereign debt issues. So lots of these countries, African, 
European countries included, many countries have issues with, with debt levels. And so we see the sovereign bond yields are above 10% in nearly a third of the emerging market economies. So emerging markets are not doing well. They actually weren't doing well previously, but it was okay when energy prices and inflation wasn't going out of control, and now it is. And then when we have rising interest rates and we raise interest rates and everybody's pegged to the dollar, they have to do that too. And that's, that's really troublesome for them. And then everything's priced in dollars, they can't afford it, and it's a mess. Um, we also have food protectionism. So a lot of people re trying to like curb you know, canola oil exports or things like that. And so that food protectionism just keeps the food in their countries. That's creating problems. That creates dislocations and supply chain issues across the globe. Um, and then moving into Russian gas dependence. I mean, the darkest colors here, this is Europe. The darkest colors here in red are the most dependent upon Russian gas. And you can see, obviously, Germany is one of those countries. So that's a really big deal. Um, and it's a really big deal for a number of reasons. And this is a, you know, this is sort of, if you take nothing away from this presentation, please take this slide away. Um, and this EIA does a great job every day. They put out these awesome little nerdy charts. Um, but this one's fantastic because this, this crystallizes the energy crisis we're seeing in Europe and the incredible green aggressive policy agenda that was just bad policy making. Um, and this is domestic production, this like maroon bar here is UK and European domestic gas production. Okay, so we can see from 2010 to 2020, it has just come down considerably. That is UK and European domestic, or the, sorry, their, their actual consumption. So consumption really hasn't changed, has not declined. So obviously your, their imports have to increase considerably. So their vulnerabilities are, and their geopolitical security here, their energy security, um, it just continues to dwindle. And then 2020 really exacerbated this because there was a, it was an ability to sort of, there was a big issue movement, obviously in 2020 with COVID. You know, people were able to sort of latch on to the idea that look, this is what the world could look like so we can reduce all this production. And Europe absolutely did. Not only did they have COVID restrictions because of people going on offshore rigs, um, they weren't actually going on offshore rigs. So they, they dropped their production in the North Sea, in the UK, in Norway, et cetera. They all dropped their production. But then in addition to that dropping of production, they also didn't, they didn't invest, they don't have storage. So when they, they're basically, their storage is essentially their production offshore. And when that production drops and then you have maintenance issues and everything, it just compounded to be a very, very big problem. And we saw that actually in last fall. So if you, if you're, the last spike we had in oil prices last fall when prices went to $80 a barrel, that was really because of the energy crisis. That was, that was the UK, Europe, um, and China all demanding a bunch of natural gas because they had a really hot summer and a cold spring in Europe, and they were, did a lot of fuel switching. So they switched their natural gas power turbines, they switched that over to diesel, and we spiked demand by about a million barrels a day for, for oil demand that wasn't expected, and that's what drove that first price spike. But we also had an unprecedented amount of renewables come online in Europe, particularly in the UK. They were an all-time high of renewable power generation capacity in September 2021 and they had an all-time low of renewable power output from renewables in September 21 because they didn't have enough wind and they didn't have enough sun and they didn't have enough rain for hydro. And so it, and then they were drawing down on their natural gas, they didn't have it, and they didn't have their coal either because nobody likes coal anymore and coal is, it's becoming very attractive right now because it's it, energy security, I mean, you can, you can shovel up coal, you can put it next to you, you can shovel it into your power plant, you don't have to pipe it, you can put it on a truck, you can put it on a rail car, you can put it on a, you can put it on a ship. It's very easy to move around. Um, lots, we have a ton of it in the US, they have a ton of it in China. Um, it, it's energy security and I think it's, I can, I can guarantee you that we will use more coal now than we, the projections for coal use are gonna be way, way higher in the future than we are projecting because of, simply because of everything I'm explaining to you. But this is Russian pipeline flows of natural gas and to Europe, and they've cratered. Um, so this is why we've seen these massive gas price spikes. And I really don't think our stock market, nor many people in business, really appreciating how damning this is going to be to Europe and how damning this is going to be to the, the world and the global economy. Um, so we can see these flows have really just cratered to nothing. Germany have come down considerably. So Russia had that Nord Stream 1 pipeline was flowing. Russia said, hey, we got we to do some maintenance on this. They did some maintenance on this pipeline. And then they brought the pipeline back to 40% of capacity. And then they dropped it a few days later to 20% capacity. And then they're just kind of holding still and just just doing a lot of threats. I mean, it's, it's low. It kind of ebbs and flows in, in how much the output. But Europe does not have enough natural gas. And they, don't, they have not invested in storage because they don't like fossil fuels, which I don't even call fossil fuels. I call them crude oil, natural gas, and, and coal. Um, but they don't like 
natural gas, so they haven't invested in storage, and they don't have it. And that's a very big problem. Now, the U.S., as you know, we produce a, sorry. Can we ask questions while you're going? I'm sorry. Um, you, no, you absolutely can. Uh, just because of the Russia piece in particular, why are, why are those uh, supplies dropping off in Russia? So I'm about to get to the Russian supplies. Not so much for natural gas, but we'll come to that. And I think that's a critical component of sort of, is, not, is Russia going to continue to produce um, and export, or are they, they going to reduce their production, and then are we going to have a problem? And that's also a big deal on the oil side of, you know, can oil prices be maintain their elevation? That's huge. Um, so if you hold that, and if I don't, you know, answer it perfectly, just interrupt me again, and we'll make sure we do it. Um, so this is U.S. natural, obviously, we're, we're exporting above capacity, um, or we're about 12 BCF a day is what we're exporting. Huge amount. We export more than anyone in the entire world. We produce more natural gas than anyone in the entire world. Our gross withdrawals are about 120 billion cubic feet per day. We're, we're the largest oil and natural gas producer in the world. I have to say that and emphasize a lot because you don't hear it on BBC, you don't hear it on Bloomberg, you don't hear it on CNBC, and you sure as hell don't hear it out of the White House. We are the largest producer of oil and natural gas in the entire world. And if we built a pipeline um, for, from the Marcellus to the Gulf Coast and we exported more natural gas, we could, not only, we could drop our prices, but we could absolutely solve the European problem because we have the natural gas. It is not a problem. I mean, you know, this is a small molecule. It's easy to produce. We frack the crap out of it, and we're barely sort of, I mean, Liberty just entered the Haynesville. We barely sort of really pushed the envelope with Haynesville. People have really curbed their, their work in the, in the Marcellus because they don't have a pipeline in the nearing capacity. So the natural gas side, I'm extremely in our, our ability to produce in the U.S. I'm not concerned about it from a technical standpoint. Lots of logistic issues, lots of inflation and employment issues. So that's our pipeline export, or pipeline exports in gray of that gas, and then our exports in, in red, and you can see the ratchet up in BCF a day. That's 12 BCF a day on average that we've ratcheted up in exports. That's huge. If, if the world didn't have that, that, several B, that 12 BCF a day, it would be a lot more painful than it is. Um, if we look at just demand, where what people are thinking, I mean, this is OPEC and IEA, and even OPEC is pretty bullish. The one thing I would say, everyone, when you're thinking about Saudi Arabia and you're thinking about OPEC+, Plus, you think about OPEC, you have to realize they're very, OPEC is very good about, and OPEC really is Saudi Arabia, but they're really good at supply. They are not very good at demand. They're not really good at sort of assessing demand and, and moving around really quickly. Like, they're not known for that. The reason we have oil price volatility is because they aren't that good. Um, they've managed to sort of, this doing this, you know, 2020 onward, they've sort of managed through this pretty well with this OPEC plus agreement. But even they are saying there are significant downside risks stemming from ongoing geopolitical tensions. They, they don't call it the war in Ukraine, they call it a, like a skirmish or an invasion um, or a, a, a geopolitical tensions. The continued pandemic, rising inflation, aggravated supply chain issues, high sovereign debt levels in many regions, and expected monetary tightening by central banks in the US, UK, Japan, Eurozone. So a laundry list of things that could impact demand, but they're pretty bullish. And then the IEA, the International Energy Agency, says that rarely has, have we seen an outlook for oil markets this uncertain. And I think that uncertainty is something people really have to appreciate, is that if you just look at IEA, so International Energy Agency in red, EIA, that's our government agency, um, Energy Information Administration, and then OPEC, that's your demand outlook. And you can see, obviously, they're kind of in line, but then they blow out a bit in 2023. So the point is, we're going to get this wrong. As forecasters, we will get this wrong. This is pretty, it's pretty hard to predict, um, but they're not quite in line, and they kind of go all over the place. Um, switching back here really quickly on refining. We lost over a million barrels a day refining capacity in the US. So that big run-up we've seen in prices Obviously, we saw $140 a barrel for a minute with the war in Ukraine. We have probably now at least 25 to 30 bucks of geopolitical tensions that's, that's in oil prices, which should really make you think a bit because when, if oil prices are 90 bucks, 30, 30 bucks of that could be geopolitical tensions, which means supply and demand, you know, where should we really be for oil prices is something that people have to think about. But we lost about a million barrels a day of refining capacity in the U.S. That is really serious. That's part of that was COVID, that was lack of demand, lots of things, but that was definitely ESG pressure as well and investor pressure and just curtailing, you know, oil, wanting to curtail oil and gas consumption. A lot of this was in California. They have, they have pushed really hard on regulations going against oil and gas. So that, that's that black line where we've declined um, refining capacity. That red line is our gross inputs into refineries. And you can see obviously it drops way down during COVID, comes back, but hasn't come back to pre-COVID levels. And so that's holding back you know, the refined output, so that's, that's a big reason why we had such high oil prices is because we didn't have the refining capacity and refined product, your gasoline, your diesel, you know, the amount we get at the refinery has a big 
that, that impacts oil prices a lot. And so Singapore, Rotterdam, and the Netherlands, and the Gulf Coast are sort of those major refining centers that help set the oil price, and this is part of it. And then that, uh, this is your just percentage of operable capacity. We're not running at flat out at 100%. We're running close. We've really ratcheted up. And so this has you know, helped. You've heard Exxon and Chevron say they're bringing back capacity. This is a great slide from Exxon. Um, and they actually show, they just show the net loss, but they show the total cumulative loss for US, Europe, Asia, and other. It's, it's over 3 million barrels a day of lost global refining capacity. That's huge. That's one of the single biggest drivers right now in high oil prices is the lack of refining capacity. And it's, when you have refining capacity and then it's off somewhere, you, you just decrease your refined exports, everybody's got to adjust and the flows have to move. And that's part of why prices are high. Uh, that's Saudi oil production output in red in 2022, you can see. So they're, they're pushing north of 10.5 million barrels per day. UAE crude production is pushing 3.2 million barrels per day. Saudi oil output, you know, Biden went over to the Middle East and he went to Saudi Arabia and he talked about, he, I don't want to say necessarily he begged, but he might have um, asked them for increased output as the administration has asked them a number of times, but he finally went over there. They came back and said, the Saudis said, yes, we're going to increase output. The Saudis came back and said, no, we did not say we're going to increase output. We will increase output as planned with our trajectory through 2027. We'll be adding 13 million barrels a day. I do believe they are doing that. We are seeing the investment. Saudi Arabia is increasing. You know, it's, it's behoove them to do so. They're doing it. But we can see this output. They're actually going to have their first time, their record high output annual. So they'll be on an annualized basis. On average, they'll be producing north of 10 million barrels per day for 2022. Um, that's a big deal. Again, we're way above that. But that's still a really big deal. And what's really interesting is Saudi Arabia burns about a million barrels a day of crude oil in the summertime for their power, for their power plants. Um, so they burn their diesel, you know, they burn it. Right now, this is just, it's so nerdy. They're buying Russian fuel oil at a discount. So massive discount and they're burning that instead. And then they're exporting all their, in their oil. So makes perfect sense for them. It's a you swappy swap, it's really nice, um, works out great. This is the rig count for Saudi, UAE, Oman, Iraq. The only thing I want to point out here is that's the Saudi rig count. Obviously it has not come back to pre-COVID levels but their output is, the output's coming back. So that's something to keep in mind of that rig count does not track perfectly in line with that output. I mean, it does roughly, uh, but we're not near at those levels and we're over 10 million barrels per day. So that's that part of that fuel oil piece that I just said is, is part of that. Um, that's Russian, that's OPEC output. We're nearing 29 million, we're nearing about 29 million barrels per day. Russian, or this is Russian price discount to Brent. So it had, it peaked about a minus $37 a barrel. Um, and it's hanging around over $30 a barrel. So if you're buying Russian crude, you are getting a severe discount to Brent. So India is buying over a million barrels a day. China is buying 2 million barrels a day. Like, this is a big deal. And to your question, Russian exports. So this is Russian crude oil exports. We've actually seen them be pretty well maintained, the crude oil exports. We've seen the Russian oil product exports decline. So we've seen the refined product exports decline. And there's a number of things going on there of, you know, will a country in war with their economy declining Will they maintain their crude oil output? Will they maintain the refined product output? And will they maintain the exports? And that, I would love to say yes, they just will because this matters a lot to them and they need to export it to maintain, you know, maintain stability economically. Um, China is, is you know, paying boatloads of money to them for, from grain to coal to natural gas to everything. But the, you can, when you're doing war and you have instability, this is a big deal. So if they're, and, and they may be doing it in intentionally, but we could see production fall off a little bit. That may not matter because demand might fall off a little bit as well, but it's something very, very important to watch closely. We have not seen their, their pipeline crude exports to Europe drop at all. Those have been maintained, nor has Europe said they don't want it. So they've been buying the crude. It's, it's really all about natural gas right now. And I don't think it's about natural gas production declining. I think it's, it's literally, they're just, it's, it's how they're using it as a weapon. Uh, but I'm not concerned at the moment about Russian natural gas production dropping off a cliff. Um, that's Chinese crude oil imports. And so China imports over 10 million barrels a day. And the main takeaway here, I cleaned this up and I, the titles are screwed up, so I apologize. But they import a million and a half barrels a day from Iran, um, a country that says they're not exporting, they, they don't say they're importing that, but they're getting a million and a half barrels a day from Iran. They get two million barrels a day from Russia. They get two million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia. So quickly you can do the math. Those are countries that we don't really like. They're very favorable to China. So China has not security supply perfectly. They still go through the water. They've still got seaborne issues. But they have a decent, they're friends with the countries that aren't very, you know, pretty autocratic and not friendly, but they're getting the crude from them. Um, they don't import a lot of natural gas, which is 
which is why, because they don't want that geopolitical vulnerability. That's um, Indi India's imports of uh, Russian crude oil. As you can see, it's jumped up dramatically. Uh, Italy is actually importing about 500,000 barrels a day of Russian crude oil as well. You know, that discount is just super appetizing to people, so they're taking it. Um, that's Russian output. So it actually, I think there were some projections. There was a month where it declined. It's kind of come back. And that did shock the market a little bit. So Russian output has been relatively maintained for oil. And that's why I say we have to just watch it super closely of how well maintained is this going to be. And I would say their economy declining, they're going to be consuming a lot less. Um, so that's something to think about. And I'm going to burn through these really fast because um, we're not um, talking too much and not making great time. Okay, consumer sentiment is very bad. We're very, very, this is Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, absolutely horrible. If you look at this from 62 to now, we are lower than we were in the 70s for consumer sentiment. So when people say we're not in a recession or things are great, it's, I call complete BS on it. Um, it's, just, it's just not true. Um, a definition of a technical recession, I literally pulled out my college textbooks last night. It can range from two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth or two consecutive quarters of slower, slower economic growth. That is two consecutive quarters of slower economic growth. That is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth in the US. That is a technical recession. That's the definition of recession, which I could care less because I really care about the Walmart earnings call and the Target earnings call and how badly those consumers are doing. And they are in recession. Um, so the administration or, or officials or you know, Janet Yellen used to be the, she was the head of the Federal Reserve, but she doesn't think, you know, she knows better because she was the head of the Federal Reserve, so she has a PhD in economics. That's a recession. Um, so saying it's not is just, um, it's absolutely ridiculous. So something's happening, right? Something's happening in the U.S. economy. But if you watch the stock market, you wouldn't necessarily see that. So you have to really, you know, see what's happening between food and food prices and fuel prices. And that's, that's the biggest story. But U U.S. and GDP, you, you know, U.S. and global GDP contractions are really big deal because this means that global demand for oil will decline. And we are seeing the IMF, every, every quarter the IMF declines their GDP forecasted you know, economic growth output for the world. They did it in, so this was from, that was from April, and they said that you know, we were 5.7% for the US, and they keep declining that. We went from globally going at being at 3.6% next year to going to 3.2% to 2.9%. I'm sure they will downgrade this again. So that's not great. Um, and I think that's going to continue to decline. And obviously, some countries will be, will be negative. The Walmart and Target story, their recent earnings call was a, also a bloodbath for Walmart. But the previous ones, it was all about inflation. It was one, you know, they had a lot of stimulus. They didn't forecast well that the stimulus checks would roll off and that people would stop spending. So people spent like crazy with their stimulus money. And then that ended. And they just, I think the, br the brutality was, was inflation. And that was that they hit it on the fuel side. So they were hit really high on transporting stuff. And then they built up all this inventory because we didn't have enough inventory. And then nobody bought the stuff. And so they have to discount all the products. And then the recent earnings call was really, really more scary because they said, we've never seen food inflation like this. And the problem is that all the consumers at Walmart are basically buying largely food. And so food is a thinner margin business. And they can't, people are actually, I mean, we're hearing in Europe, in the UK, where people are just saying, putting all the groceries on the, you know, they call it the till, but on the cash register. And they're just uh, saying, give me 40 pounds worth. And they stop at 40 pounds, and they put the rest of the groceries back. Because that's what people are at. It is a super, super serious issue. And I, I absolutely don't think people are appreciating you know, the, the health of the consumer on a, the bottom 50% of America um, is just getting shredded right now, and let alone savings. I mean, credit card spending is going way up, but everybody's blowing through their savings and putting stuff on credit cards uh, because if you're, that's your inflation levers have dropped a smidgen, but that's food inflation is 13.1%. That is absolutely out of control, and we're at levels that we've never seen it before. And so it's just biting into everybody's ability to do day-to-day -day things. Um, electricity prices are up 15%, and you can see we're, this is, that's July, those are just by the kilowatt hour. Electricity prices are also brutal, so this winter people are going to have to decide between, you know, heating the home, paying the rent, and that's another big problem, and uh, paying the mortgage and, um, and feeding their kids. And the debt problem is also really big. We were $16 trillion in debt, household debt. Um, we had added a, a trillion dollars in debt in, two, in last year, in 2021. That is the single biggest increase we've seen since 2007. Yes, that should make you think about 2008 and the recession and the big problems there. But we've added even more recently. So we have, um, we have over 16 trillion in household debt. 
a massive amount of this is obviously from housing debt from mortgages because everybody and their dog wanted to buy a home during COVID and we all needed vacation homes, we all needed to renovate our home and we needed new kitchens and we needed patios and we needed everything. We didn't actually need any of that, but that's what we all wanted to do. And we all pulled out debt on our homes, our equity, and because it was cheap and we built all this stuff. That helped, you know, that helped Lowe's and that helped Home Depot and that helped all these businesses and everything. Also created massive supply chain bottlenecks, made it very difficult for the person who needed the washer and dryer and didn't need an upgrade to actually buy it. And it created all this price inflation and labor issues and everything. And now, People bought, I, I truly believe people bought homes that they couldn't afford. Um, and then they, we also have this other debt. Now we haven't paid back student loans in three years, so that's a problem. Um, so mortgage rates are going up, that, that's a problem as well because um, it, it's expensive to buy a home. The housing index does not look good. Like the consumer, the sentiment on housing, if you walk around Denver, if you walk around Highlands, you will see a lot of new homes being built. And the Fed, Jerome Powell actually mentioned that in his last speech of the homes being, there's a lot of new homes coming online and they're coming on in a softer market. So new home builds are a very big deal because we have a ton of them coming online. Uh, rent is very expensive, so yes, people still want to buy, but they don't want to buy a more, they, they may want to buy, but they may not be able to afford it given all the other things we've just explained. UK inflation, electricity prices, that's UK inflation. That's just out of control. And their electricity prices have, quadrupled in one year, and they just raised electricity, the price cap, to 500 pounds per month, um, which is, if you can imagine if our electricity bills were $500 a month, um, it would hurt pretty bad. Even for people who can afford it, it would still hurt, and it's going to, I mean, really hurting the average person, but that's um, something that's just, I think, going to really tank uh, the economy in, in Europe. And then inflation, that's that blue chart. Inflation is out of control in Europe as well, um, and those electricity prices Whew, those are those are rough and they're all going to curtail gas demand they're all going to curtail gas usage particularly in the industrial sector and if you curtail gas usage that's going to curtail your output of goods and services which means you have to slow the economy and that's really not being reflected in most data um, so all this inflation the fed has to raise rates and most people would say that that um, most economists are projecting you have to, unemployment will rise the trouble we're having with people appreciating that unemployment rises it lags um, sorry, this is uh, home prices. We're backing, uh, I don't have these slides in order, my apologies. That's average home price in the US. You can see that on a tear, average mortgage size. Just important to point out that in 2007, 2008, the average home price was a lot lower than it is now, and the average mortgage size was a, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Now it's double that. Um, so yes, the mortgage rates are lower, healthier consumers. I still think it's a big problem because those mortgage payments are a lot higher. Um, so inflation, interest rates, and unemployment, this is your other money slide that if you take nothing away, stare at this one. Uh, because if we think about like, this is, you see inflation in orange, you see unemployment in purple, and you see the Fed's fund rate or interest rates in black. And what you'll see is that the orange and the black should, they kind of track together. They're not really tracking together now. We're kind of, we're off kilter. If you have a zoom in, this is, we're off kilter where we've allowed inflation to go up and the Fed funds rate has really lagged behind it. Unemployment. Is, comes after you raise rates and you have inflation. And so you can see the 1980s, May 1980, you had 14.7% inflation. January 1981, you had a 19.1% interest rate. And then November 1982, you had 10.1% unemployment. So um, guarantees are really hard, but I, I would bet a lot of money that unemployment is going to go up and it lags a bit. Um, so if we look at high oil prices and high inflation, we've never seen it before at these levels. That's oil prices in green, inflation in red. And that's the 1970s, where you had high oil prices, but then inflation, like you, or the oil prices came up, but not to those levels. And inflation then came down, and we've been, we've had low. And that low oil prices, low inflation, we had that. I mean, we actually had great unemployment too, and we don't have that now. And that is extremely damning to the future outlook for the employment side. Um, and that's why the Fed is so anxious right now, because they were behind the curve. Global oil demand, you can just see over time, this is just historical oil demand, how it dipped. That was a six million barrel day decline in the 70s after two oil price shocks. Um, East Asian crisis, very little. And then we lost about 1.4 million barrels a day of global oil demand in the Great Recession. The thing is, in the Great Recession, we were the ones that dropped the oil demand, the US was. And we, we consume about 20 million barrels a day. So we move the needle a lot on the global oil market and oil prices. And that's a 3.7 million barrel day decline in the 1980s. It took, it took long time to recover. We did not recover that demand until 1998, and then we lost two and a half million barrels of demand in 2008 with the Great Recession. Unemployment lagged there too. 
something, another nerdy chart. I don't never seen anyone put this together, but I couldn't help myself. This is US home prices and oil demand, and they rise, this is just for the US, and they rise and fall together. That's 2008, that's oil demand and housing prices, and literally track and lockstep. And that's because you're using diesel, all these components, like the economy's rip-roaring, and then it slows down, and I, they're not, I'm not saying they're gonna crater by any means, but they will come down together. And that's just US GDP, that's GDP, global GDP, unemployment, and oil demand. And you can see they also track really, really nicely together. Um, I'm going to probably pause here and say we can take questions because I didn't get through all my slides, but that's okay. This is the remember to be humble slide and that saying I will be wrong. Um, most forecasters will be wrong. And that's because we always take the moment we have in time where like where we're sitting and where oil prices are at, where our crises are, and we use that to sort of project forward. Um, and this was this is a slide from 2000. And you can see the high oil prices. The Energy Information Administration said the high oil price in the year 2000 was going to be under $30 a barrel. And we were going to be about $20 a barrel. And the problem is that when you go back and you look at all these forecasts from the IEA, from OPEC, and from EIA, what they get wrong is that the lower the, they, they basically got wrong um, oil prices in, in forecasting, and they got wrong oil demand. So we tend and oil output. And we, they always thought that oil output would be lower the lower the oil price, and that wasn't true. We had very low oil prices in the US, and we still produce a lot of oil. And they also, they also tend to get demand wrong. But the output and oil price are really critical. Um, and we've got those wrong basically historically every single time. Uh, US demand, you can see that, black, that red line is US demand, and that black line is oil prices. And we have come off. We peaked demand sort of in December of last year for oil demand, and it, it has sort of backslid, which has got people a little bit anxious. Nothing crazy, but it's come down a bit. This is the joint statement from from Russia and Ukraine, or from, sorry, from Russia and, and China that came out in February 4th. If you haven't read it, I absolutely encourage you to do so. It's an it's incredible document. And when people say there's no limits to the friendship, it actually said there are no forbidden areas of cooperation, which is very, very serious because Russia is, um, Russia basically had this huge agreement with China. China's funding this war. And the reason why this is more serious, because I really do believe this is sort of the battle before the bigger stuff that's happening. I mean, this is just, this is a little thing going, not a little thing, it's very serious, but it's going on in Europe. We're not, it's not affecting us the same way it's affecting everyone else. But China has got the eyes on this as opposed to what's going on in China. Not as of late because of the Taiwan stuff, but this is really serious because they both reaffirmed their support for each other, especially their territorial ambitions. Chinese raw coal production is at all-time highs. They've increased output by 100 million tons in the past five years alone. Um, they have domestic energy security. They have domestic power security through their own coal production. Really serious, because they're the only country in the world that's actually building out renewables with their coal power generation in tandem. And renewables helps them, you know, they build up the sector, they sell it to us. Um, and then they put their renewables in with the coal so they never have intermittency issues. They're also facing huge costs for the transmission build out in renewables, so that's probably gonna slow. But that coal output should make people a little bit nervous because food and energy security has been a really big deal in China. But coal output like that means that you really want domestic energy security because you may wanna go do things in the waters and you may want people like, you've kind of secured your oil from, from Saudi Arabia and Iran and other countries. And yes, we could screw up the waters, the sea lanes of communication, but they can turn the lights on. And that's a, that's a very big deal if you wanna to go to war or if you wanna just take over Taiwan or if you just wanna you know, make sure your territorial issues. Energy security is extremely important. Um, and this is China imports from Russia, just so you can see uh, in dollars. So you can see that um, it's high. So obviously that's, it's gone up considerably since 2020 alone, um, but it really has, has grown in the war. So a lot of Chinese money is going into Russia. And I'm um, sorry, that's coal output again. Just, this is Chinese unemployment. We have a big deal with Chinese unemployment. Their economy is not doing well. Um, and their, their housing sector is an absolute mess. Um, so you've heard of Evergrande, probably Country Garden, this sovereign, you know, these, these debt crises with the, um, with the home builders. It's about a third of their economy, is the, so it's a huge deal. And it's extremely, um, it, it's falling apart at the seams. You now have people not paying their mortgages. And they basically, the way they fund their housing sector is you're paying a mortgage before something's ever built. So you put a down payment and it's a bit of a Ponzi scheme. It's kind of a pyramid scheme. So you're the builder, you're the home buyer, and you pay him. He hasn't built it yet, but you pay him. And then you continue to make mortgage payments. But now you're looking at these houses never being built and you're getting worried that you may never get it. So now you actually have people squatting in very unsafe, completely unbuilt homes without electricity, just you know, 20 people living in an apartment. And 
it's extremely serious. Um, that could also take down the global economy. That's a big deal. But they're trying to insulate their economy in many ways because they do have territorial ambitions. Um, that's home price decline. You can just see that it's, it's continuing. So that's a problem. This is, um, we'll switch gears into ESG, and this is how we'll close. So ESG, investor pressure, policies, regulations. This is a power plant in Hayden, Colorado that they're going to shut down, which I'm pretty bitter about. Um, because Excel has very ambitious plans to reduce their carbon footprint, um, which is going to reduce it by very, very little. But they want to shut down these coal-fired power plants. And um, the, the relevant point is this. This is the engine number one. This is the forecast from engine number one that they used to get on the board of Exxon. And this was their you know, oil demand trajectory. And basically, the whole, the whole synopsis was, hey, look how erratic oil demand is. And you're, we're not going to demand oil anymore. And therefore, Exxon, you need to let us on the board. And we need to help you not produce, you know, curtail oil production because we're not going to demand it. And therefore, you won't be profitable if you're producing oil and we don't demand it. That's just clearly not, I mean, that, that's a real problem with that thesis. But the real big problem is that if you're investing in renewables aggressively as an ENP, you're, re, you're not investing in oil and gas. So there's money, there's dollars going to renewable energy that does not produce as high of a BTU, as high of an energy output. And that is creating and exacerbating the current food and energy crisis. And that is, to me, a real ESG problem. And it is, it is a moral problem, and it's very serious, and it drives me absolutely insane. Um, so when Exxon, and they're doing a little bit better now in how they're talking about it, but they all bent the knee, and they all you know, went crazy, and they all dove into the ESG pressure, they're going to be spending um, over, by, in 2025, they'll be spending $3 billion of CapEx on, on renewables. So very, very lower BTU outputs, though, because think about if that was going to oil and gas. And then the percentage, basically, of what they're, of these companies spending, you know, all these big, you know, oil and gas majors and national oil companies, the push to them to, you know, the percentage of the CapEx to go to lower carbon, it's very big. Now, we have th these SEC proposed rules on climate change, this would impact their um, scope three emissions, as I mentioned, 344 times. This would impact way more than just oil and gas. This would impact the entire US economy, because this is your end user emissions, which is impossible to deal with. And the real problem I have is that when oil companies say, OK, well, we're OK with scope one and scope two emissions, but we're not OK with scope three. And they've, they've leaned in way too much to the ESG side. And they have to be, um, and Chris Wright had an amazing quote in his earnings call. And you all should listen to it. I put it on LinkedIn. I, I posted it on LinkedIn. I put it in my last podcast, in the last couple, actually. But he just says that, look, the industry, if we aren't going to talk about what we do, then who else is? If we're not going to talk and advocate about what we do, there is nobody else that's going to do it for us, because they don't like this industry. And so it's really important that the oil and gas leaders talk about how serious this is. And I say, if you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to want a glass of milk. So you can lean in all you want in scope one and scope two. And I respect reducing methane emissions, doing all the good things that we can do. But you have to explain that end user emissions completely screw up the economy. And this is the iHeart net zero, is every single company is all about net zero. What is net zero? Net zero is, is net zero emissions by 2050. That came from, net zero came from, this is independence, oil independence in the US, Exxon, you name it, everybody's all about net zero, which is, it's fine. But the reality is, is that US oil and gas production only contributes 1% of US CO2 emissions. So you can reduce it, you can kill yourself all day long, and you are not going to drop you're not going to impact CO2 emissions. So then it just, it's hard for me to understand that it's about CO2 and it's not, you know, this isn't something bigger. And it, if it's not actually benefiting anything, you're spending a lot of money on it. And the problem is when you give a massive cookie, they want a glass of milk. This is where if you listen to shareholders uh, board meeting call, if you listen to Exxon's shareholder calls and other major, their, their calls that they let you listen to, the people that call in and say, hey, we should do this. They reference this, and this is the World Benchmarking Alliance, which tells comp oil companies not to the, a certain percentage, a little bit they, they want to spend on green. They want them to limit their capex to only 23% of their capex can go to oil and gas production in EMP, which means that energy crisis we're talking about now would absolutely explode because only 23% of EMP capex can actually go to oil and gas, and it, the rest, 77%, needs to go to low carbon and renewables. And that's a problem. That's all meanwhile, China's you know, ramping up coal and telling us they're doing their net zero, which they're not doing their net zero. They're just saying they're going to do the net zero. Since this whole thing with Taiwan has happened, they've decided that they're not going to talk to us about climate change anymore. That's super shocking, because they were never serious about it in the first place. So we all should have shocked faces on right now, which, you know, wow. Um, but they're wind and solar additions. They, act, they have massive amounts. And that's because what I said, they're building those out in tandem. But another big ESG problem I have with this is that all the wind and solar that we're buying, Almost all of the world's 
uh, global you know, solar panels, we're talking 80% of, we're talking batteries, solar panels, heat pumps, this is, majority of them are coming from China. So in 2020, we're talking about nearly 80% of batteries are coming from China. And uh, we're talking about 70, over 70%, and that's, it's actually higher in 2020. We're talking about 80% of solar panels are coming from China. And so when you, you, they're sort of causing the problem and, and selling the solution. Say they're the largest CO2 emitter in the world, and they produce those solar panels with coal-fired power generation, with their, their domestic coal, with forced labor in the province of Xinjiang, and then they sell it to us, and we have all these aggressive policies, and we put it on our roofs and everything. And I know that makes people feel better, but if it's, it's not necessarily solving anything, especially in the beginning of that. And they've been able to drop prices considerably because they sold the tech, I mean, this is 100% factual, by the way, they sold the tech, the, the best solar panel technology, they stole it from Germany, then they started producing it in the province of Xinjiang with forced labor, so they were able to drop the cost dramatically because they don't pay people to do it, and then they export it all over the world. And they are absolutely involved in pushing the climate change green rhetoric um, to help do this. And that's a it's a really significant issue. The propaganda piece is not really appreciated. But you can see for copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, rare earths, they control a vast majority of it. Um, and that's a problem when um, we're, we're not in good relations with them. Um, they do have three million Uyghur Muslims in forced labor and internment camps. This is their uh, newspaper, by the way. So this is Global Times. It's one of their like big geopolitical ones that they want Americans to see. And obviously Nancy Pelosi's all over it. But this one's big because this is one that came out with a couple days ago. This is their nine dash line. And they basically said, quote, not even a bit of left behind. So they've been wanting to go after Taiwan for a long time. But now I think it's really serious to appreciate that they are at the height of their economic out, like economy. They're not gonna have a better time to do this than now when, when global leaders are falling off the cliff. They absolutely view the US as very vulnerable. Um, they don't see the leadership strong. Um, they, they talk about in this newspaper a lot about Biden being a much older man, that he has health issues. So they see it that way. Um, the other side of this ESG thing is that the estimates of, are extremely expensive. Um, and I just explained to you how good the global economy looks, which is not great, and the estimates for the energy transition are, is 9.2 trillion a year between now and 2050. So I have no idea where that's gonna come from. It is a massive amount of money. We don't have it anymore, and it's, that's 276 trillion. And when you do the estimates or back of the envelope stuff on actually what the mitigation efforts for you know, the fires that are taking place in Europe right now and everything, the mitigation efforts are significantly less. So there's a, a push-pull of sort of understanding what to do and what not to do, and these numbers are just Bananaville. And so I don't, it just won't happen. Whether people want it to or not, it's just not going to be paid for. And lastly, I'll close on the U.S. because I'm very bullish on the U.S. technical side, but I think the public-private split in the U.S. is very, very significant. Um, that's purple are the public or private rigs, um, orange is public, and you can obviously see that publics have not come back. And that to me, that's obviously investor pressure, that's not just ESG, but that's a component to it where the publics have not come back in earnest in producing oil and gas, they're giving a lot of money to shareholders, and rightfully so, I, I respect a lot of reasons behind that, but there's other things. Uh, we lost a record amount of energy production in the US in terms of BTU output, and this is just a great chart that EA just put out, and it's a huge amount of coal production in Wyoming. This is super serious from an energy security standpoint, um, and something the opposite, again, of what China's doing, and this is how you flip the game in terms of geopolitics. If you wanted to take all the power away from Russia and China, you would produce as much oil, natural gas, and coal in democratic countries in the US and Europe as possible, and they just wouldn't have the power and control on that. Um, and that's exactly what China's doing right now, is producing as much as they can, so they can have the greatest geopolitical flexibility. Um, and it's a pretty bipartisan issue, the China thing. That's U.S. production, oh, um, gas production, we talked about that, highs. Um, New Mexico is producing 1.5 million barrels per day. That's just huge. Um, sorry, that's Texas on top, New Mexico on the bottom there. So that's Permian and, and obviously Eagleford. The crude output has come back significantly. You guys know this, you're in the business. You know how tight everything is. But New Mexico output, that's two counties. That's Lee and Eddy County. That's a, I mean, this is some of the best rock in the entire world, but it's, it's good. So I'm not worried about our well sucking or what it looks like. I mean, they're not. Um, we don't have as many, we, we're about to where we were for the previous rig count. So we've sort of crushed that, especially with efficiency gains. That's uh, oil rigs, that's gas rigs. And you can see for oil rigs, we have far more, um, far more privates than we do publics. And the gas side, we haven't even come back near where we were and we're producing a crap ton of gas from that associated gas. If you normalize all these basins, um, Bakken, Powder, DJ, Anadarko, Permian, Eagleford, 
on a normalized decline curve, they've still increasing productivity, even by, t it's, it's a smidgen, it's a tiny, but the fact that they've increased productivity all is significant. That's your QM that's not normalized, but the reality is that we're not, um, we haven't lost massive diminishing marginal returns. Our average lateral length is, we're kind of flattened out a little bit, but we're still under 10,000 feet. That's Permian Basin average lateral length is well over 10,000 feet, really crushing it there. Um, that's your Permian public-private rig count. You can just see, I mean, privates are going crazy. Publics have not come back at all. Um, that's Permian public-private rigs here on the left. That is your ducks. Um, and I think it's really important to see that is that privates are sort of everywhere. And it really debunks the tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four acreage thesis. Um, because when oil prices are high and these privates clearly have the funding, they've been able to get the funding, they are drilling everywhere and they're poking holes in the ground. And eventually those holes being poked in the ground come back into production. But it's also meaningful because it means that the theses that privates couldn't get capital, they have gotten capital. And they also, if you talk to a lot of privates, they are um, pretty aggressive in how they're completing these wells. They're not foregoing, they're not curtailing their completion design or anything because they want the maximum output. Um, and that's significant because it means a lot of sort of the technical stuff that people thought was over is not over. And I promise I'm almost done. Um, this is your Permian public-private uh, rig count, which to me really illustrates the impact of investor pressure and partly of that ESG and that investor pressure. And that's your publics, which have just not come back, and that's your privates. Your privates, we have more private operators and private rigs now than we did pre-COVID. And you could talk to many major private equity firms, the heads of private equity firms, and they would have told you a few years ago that was not possible. We had, they said that one and two rig companies in the Permian would go away, that trend was dying, and we completely debunked that. And again, that just goes back to my will be wrong thesis. Um, that's your public and private rigs. Again, you can see how, where the privates are, where the publics are, they're very concentrated. The privates are everywhere. I mean, this is a good thing, they're de-risking stuff. That's your horizontal well completions. That's horizontal wells brought online. So we clearly have not come back to pre-COVID levels, and yet you know we're getting there. Um, and that's just that split. Private wells have come back. Publics have not. Again, that's that pressure, um, which is really serious. And I'll close just with DJ. You know, if you have a lot of publics, you won't have that movement um, in terms of your well being wells being added. We have a lot of publics here. We have some um, privates. That's your well completions, and that's your permits. And with that, I will close. And thank you so much for your time. <laughs>